Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 27th, 2022. <clears throat> I heard this from Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. A woman accompanied her husband to the doctor's office, and the doctor examined the husband, and after he finished and came out, the doctor asked to speak to this wife privately. And he said to her, your husband is really sick, I'm sorry to tell you. He has a very serious stress disorder. And if you do not make drastic changes in the lifestyle that you're both leading, he said, he's not going to make it. He is going to deteriorate and he will pass away. So the doctor said, listen, you need to listen very carefully to what I'm telling you. And you need to follow this to the letter. Every morning, you have to prepare for your husband a healthy, nutritious breakfast. You have to be pleasant to him at every moment. For lunch, you should make him a delicious homemade lunch that he will enjoy. And for dinner, you have to make sure that there is a delicious, scrumptious, hot dinner waiting on the table as soon as he comes in for work. Don't ask him to do any chores. Don't discuss any of your problems with him. He can have no stress in his life at all. No nagging. You have to compliment him several times a day and tell him how wonderful he is and how intelligent he is. And most important, you must never, ever disagree with him. And if you do this, then I think within 10 or 12 months, I think that his health will improve and he will get better and he'll survive. On the way home, the husband asked his wife, what did the doctor say? And she told him, he said, you're going to die. <laughs> Law is a little bit like that. Because there are expectations of proper behavior. And there is a recognition that not everyone will live up to that. And so law asks the question, how do we respond when those inevitable mistakes and crimes happen? Let me share first a fundamental aspect of the way Jewish law works based on the text of the Torah relating to our parsha, the portion of Mishpatim, which largely deals with Jewish law. There's a fundamental principle 
that there are two sources of legislation in Jewish law. There is de'arayasa from the Torah, meaning coming from God, biblical laws. And there is de'rabbanan, rabbinic laws, enacted by rabbis over the centuries and continuing till this day. They have different levels of authority, different ways that they work, of course. A religious Jew is obligated to observe all of it, biblical and rabbinic. Darayasa, the biblical laws, are in two forms. We refer to one as Torah Shebiksav, the written law. That refers to the text of the Chumash, the five books of Moses. And there is the oral law, Torah Shebaal Peh. Now, later in Jewish history, about roughly... 2,000 years ago, but before and after on both sides for a couple of hundred years, that Torah Shabal Peh, that oral law that was given by God to Moshe at Mount Sinai, was later written down in what we now have as the Gemara, the Talmud, together with the subsequent rabbinic legislation. But the crucial point is that Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law is God's explanation to Moshe of what God meant when he said, Moshe, write this down in the Chumash, in what became the Tarsh of the written law of the five books of Moses. Now, Moshe, I'm going to tell you orally the explanation of what it means. And it is not correct to say that the oral law is a later human interpretation of the Torah in order to soften or ease the mitzvot in the Torah itself. Now, that second belief is very widely believed outside of the religious world, outside of the traditional Jewish world. It is the belief that is widely quoted. But we disagree with that. And we assert as a fundamental principle that the written and the oral law were given by God to Moshe at the same time, but in two forms, one written and one oral. One of the most famous examples of this is in our Torah portion. So in our Parsha, we read as follows. And if it should happen that two people are fighting and one of them causes an injury to the other, then the punishment is ayin tachas ayin and eye for an eye, shein tachas shein, a tooth for a tooth, Yad tachas yad, a hand for a hand, regel tachas regel, a foot for a foot. If one person puts out someone else's eye, says the Torah, we put out that person's eye, etc., etc. Now, many people will say, and you'll hear this quoted all the time, that that passage, very famous passage and often quoted, that that passage 
is the words of a strict, stern, vengeful God. And then later, those words were moderated by compassionate human beings later in the Talmud who said what that really means is you pay a financial penalty, a fine, a monetary fine. But God forbid we don't actually cut off anybody's hand. We, as traditional Jews, reject that view. Rather, we assert, and by the way, we know this from another verse in the Torah itself, that from the time that God spoke to Moshe, the law was for damaging, for injuring another person, the penalty is a monetary penalty. It was always a monetary penalty. But we assert that here's what happened at the top of Mount Sinai. God says to Moshe, Moshe, write down these words, ayin tachas ayin, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Write that down. Now, Moshe, let me explain to you what I mean. I don't mean, Moshe, that you should actually put the person's eye out. I mean that there should be a monetary fine for injuring the other person. Now, that just begs the question, so why is it written that way? I mean, if we're asserting that both the written text, eye for an eye, and the oral law, it's really a monetary fine, come at the same time and they're both from God, then why write it one way and then explain that it actually means something very different? Because doing it this way leads to a lot of misunderstandings. Because there are lots of people that believe that God actually wants us to cut off someone's hand and we decided, no, we're going to do it differently. So if that's not true, why write it in a way that is so easily misunderstood? Allow me to share with you the approach of the Rav, Rav Yosef Salavechik of blessed memory. He explains that had the Torah written kesev tachas ayin, a monetary penalty if you put out someone's eye, if that's what would have been written down in the text of the Torah, it would have resulted in the greatest denigration of the honor of human beings because it would assert that human limbs and senses which define humankind have economic value. And it would lead to the assumption that if one has money, one would have the right to put out someone's eye and pay for it. And that would be a complete contradiction 
to the principle at the very beginning of the Torah that every human being is created, but selem elokim, in God's image, every human being, their physical body has infinite value. Ayin tachas ayin, an eye for an eye, explains the Rav, expresses our anger, our desire for revenge, to take away someone's ability to see as a result of their causing another person not to be able to see, or to take away a person's ability to act with their hand if they have taken away someone else's ability to act with their hand. The person who did this deserves that that limb, that ability, should be taken away because what they did in harming another individual is a terrible crime. And therefore, explains Rav Soloveitchik, Midas Hadin, the characteristic of strict Justice requires full retaliation. The punishment must be equivalent to the damage caused. This is what justice requires, and it's expressed in the written Torah, eye for an eye. But there is another aspect of justice that was taught by God to Moshe at the same time. In addition to Midas Hadin, justice being strict and stern and retribution in accordance with the harm that was caused, there is also another aspect, Hamtakas Hadin, the sweetening of justice, the attenuation of justice, moderating justice, which says... Really, this offender deserves that their eye be put out. Midas Hadin, strict justice, is correct, but we cannot do it. We cannot do it because it would make us, the judges and the court, it would make us cruel. We humans are not sufficiently refined to impose that punishment without being affected by that barbaric act, that gruesome act. And that's why God tells Moshe, write down eye for an eye, but impose it as a monetary penalty for the eye. Both are true. One is the ideal, the theory, and the other is the practice to protect us from becoming cruel. And that puts gigantic responsibility on the judges who orchestrate the judicial system. Because they need not only to decide cases justly, but they need to foster the refinement of society's character.
So let's consider for a few minutes what qualifications do judges need for this awesome double responsibility? In order to explain this, let me start with the fact that there are several difficult problems with the order of our Torah portion this week, Mishpatim, and last week's Torah portion, Yisro. And let me pose two basic questions. Number one, the narrative of Matan Torah, God's revelation to the entire Jewish people at Mount Sinai, and the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Aseris Adibros, that narrative occurs twice. It was in last week's Parsha, the portion of Yisro, and it's also in this week's Parsha at the end of the portion of Mishpatim. But the two pieces belong together. They form one narrative event. Why are they divided with the bulk of our portion, Mishpatim, Jewish civil law, and Jewish criminal law in between the two halves of one story. Put the story together. <clears throat> we'll come back to that question a little bit later. But there's a second question. In last week's Torah portion, Yisro, which has the narrative of God revealing himself at Mount Sinai, the Aseris Hadibros, the Ten Commandments. That narrative is preceded by a different narrative, and we discussed this last week. The narrative of Yisro, the father-in-law of Moshe, comes to visit. And remember, we discussed this. Yisro sees his son-in-law Moshe at work, and he sees him sitting in judgment from morning till night, and people are lined up to adjudicate the suits, ask questions. And Vayar Jose Moshe, Es Kol Asher La'am, Yisro sees how Moshe is doing this, and Yisro says to his son-in-law, Lo Tov HaDavar, what you're doing is not good. Navol Tibol, you're going to get burnt out. The people are going to get burnt out. That's not a good system. I have a suggestion, Yisro says to Moshe. Listen to what I'm saying. You should appoint from among the people people of valor, those who fear God, people who are truthful, those who hate corruption, and, and appoint them as judges. So you have lower courts and higher courts, and you'll be the final authority. If there's some question that nobody else can answer, you'll be the final authority, but most of the cases will be taken care of by these lower courts. And if you do this, Yisro says to Moshe, everything's going to work out okay. And by Yishma Moshe Lekolchosno, Moshe listened to what his father-in-law said. By Yas Kol Asher Omar, 
And, Yis- and Moshe did everything that Yisro had suggested. Now, when Yisro makes his constructive criticism to his son-in-law Moshe to delegate responsibility for adjudicating disputes, he sets in motion one of the most important components of Judaism. Because this is the establishment of Jewish law. The Jewish law court system. A system of lower courts and a higher court. And over time, this became codified with a Sanhedrin Agadol, the great Sanhedrin, the so-called, so to speak, the Supreme Court of 71 judges, and the first Sanhedrin Agadol was led by Moshe. Moshe was the head of the first great Sanhedrin. Then there was a Sanhedrin, a regular Sanhedrin, which had 23 judges. And once the Jewish people came into Israel, a Sanhedrin, at least one, was located in every single city and town. And that court had responsibility for any kind of case, whether it is civil or criminal. And the lowest court is called Bezdin or Bet-Din, and that's a court of three judges. And that was, meant, that was much more numerous. And a Bezdin would have the authority to adjudicate disputes over monetary matters, private disputes between two parties, issues of personal status, like questions over marriage and divorce and conversion. Now, the whole structure of the entire lower and higher court system applying all of Jewish law remained active and intact for about 1,400 years from the time of Yisro and Moshe until just before the destruction of the Second Temple around the year 30 of the Common Era. After that time, we no longer had a Sanhedrin, and we no longer had a Sanhedrin Agadol, but we still have Bezdin, Betdin, that continues till today. But wouldn't this passage at the beginning of last week's portion, the Parsha of Yisro, wouldn't it be better placed at the beginning of our Parsha this week, Mishpatim? Isn't it a more natural introduction to our parsha, the portion of laws, have Yisro's passage where we see the structure of judges and then present the laws, Elahamishpatim, in our parsha, that the judges should apply. It makes more sense for those two to go together. I confess to you, I do not have an answer to this question. I don't know why the judicial part is divided into two with the first part about the judges before the narrative of the giving of the Torah and the laws in our portion. And if you come up with an answer or you see an answer, I would love to hear about it. I confess, I don't have an answer to that question. 
But notice the following. Notice how comprehensively Yisro phrases the essence of this entire system, which is the qualification of judges. Let's review one more time what the qualifications are. They must be, Yisro says to Moshe, Anshechayil, people of valor, of courage, willing to make unpopular decisions, willing to rule against powerful people or wealthy people if necessary. They must be Yirei Hashem. They must fear God. They must be religiously observant in their personal, private lives. You know, famous statement, someone once said, I don't have to be a triangle to teach geometry. I don't have to be ethical to teach ethics. But we disagree with that. Jewish law is based on the principle that in order to be a judge, that person must behave according to the Torah with a sense of reverence and awareness of God's presence, which means that God is aware of how I come to a decision and why, even if no one else knows. And my awareness of that will help to make sure that my decision is just. Another criteria, Anshe Emes, they must know the law. They must know the Torah clearly and completely. Justice may involve sometimes intuition or a feeling, but it must be based on facts and law. And it requires absolute expertise of the law. That is a prerequisite for being a judge. But still, with all of those qualifications, there is the possibility of injustice, which calls for the last criteria. Sone betza. It must be a person who abhors corruption. Sone from the word sinna means to hate corruption like it's an enemy. Sinna, hatred, rage against corruption. Because corruption can infect anyone the most religious, the most expert, the most courageous, every single human being is potentially subject to corruption. In our Torah portion this week, Mishpatim, there's a famous verse talking about judges. V'shochad lo zikach. A judge may not take a bribe. Now that sounds kind of obvious, right? A judge may not take a bribe. But listen carefully to the words of the verse. <coughs> Excuse me. V'shochad lo sikach. Do not accept a bribe. Ki ha-shochad ya'aver pikhim. Because a bribe 
blinds the eyes of one who is smart, bisalef divrei tzadikim, and distorts the words of one who is righteous. Several commentators ask the question, let's just listen to the language very carefully. If one takes a bribe, how can you call them righteous? It perverts the words of the righteous. Well, if he accepted a bribe, he's not righteous, is he? So listen, please, to what the Talmud says. The Talmud, in trying to analyze the etymology of this word shochad, which we translate as bribe, explains that it's actually a portmanteau. It's two separate words put together. Shehu kechad. The one who receives the bribe becomes connected to the one who gave it. Shehu kechad. He becomes connected with him. In other words, it is an absolute lack of objectivity when there is a financial motivation, when there is a relationship with one of the litigants, automatically, even unconsciously, that creates bias and it leads to Betza, corruption. And that means it is not preventable to be affected by a bribe. Even a tzaddik, even a pikeach, a smart or righteous person will be affected even if a person recognizes I have a certain bias, but I am certain that I am able to adjudicate this dispute correctly. That just means that they have been blinded because the effect of a bribe is automatic. It is inevitable and it affects everyone. Says the Aruch HaShulchan, a great scholar from the early 1900s, that this rule applies not only to a judge in court, it applies to anyone who is making a decision that affects others. Every single one of us is subject to influence. Every single one of us. And even if we don't recognize it within ourselves, even if we are certain that we have remained objective, if there is some kind of connection, our judgment will be faulty. It will be clouded. And there is no way around that. That is the structure that Yisro outlined. And that remains at the core of Judaism, even today, 3,500 years later. So a few years ago, 
Nottingham, England had a problem. A rising rate of domestic violence. And so they wanted to come up with ideas to combat this terrible situation of domestic abuse, domestic violence. So they came up with a plan in Nottingham, England in 2019. What they would do is they would replace in the homes where a woman felt that she might be in danger from being abused by her husband or her partner, they would replace the sharp knives in the kitchen with knives that had a blunt edge in order to prevent their partner from stabbing them to death. And the Nottinghamshire police bought 100 knives specifically manufactured without points, not a sharp point at the end, to replace the kitchen knives in the homes of Britons who have been attacked or threatened with a knife. That plan sparked quite a bit of outrage, including from, among other people, Dr. Jessica Eaton, who is a psychologist and the founder of an organization called Victim Focus that consults on mental health and domestic abuse. And she said, the problem is not the sharpness of the knife. The problem is male violence. This is sadly, tragically, a huge societal problem that our Torah portion Mishpatim clearly addresses. We have in our Parsha the standard of how a husband should treat his wife, and that gets formulated within the words of the Gemara and the Talmud in the following words, the way a husband should act towards his wife and a, and, and an, a wife towards her husband. Ohevis ishto kagufo, a husband should love his wife as much as he loves himself. Umachabda yoser migufo, but he must show her greater honor than he shows himself. Which certainly includes whatever I would not like done to me, I certainly will not do to you. However, I would not like to be spoken to, I certainly will not speak to you. However, I would not like to be made to feel, I certainly will not make you feel like that. In our Torah portion, we have the prohibition of a husband, God forbid, hitting a wife or anyone else. Clear biblical prohibition, actionable in court. Even raising a hand in anger menacing. The Talmud says about such a person, Nikra Russia. That person is called Russia, a wicked person, just for raising their hand, for menacing somebody else.
our Parsha also clearly prohibits verbal abuse, insulting, calling names, reducing self-esteem. The Talmud says, Ein Adam dar im nachash achas. A person cannot be expected to live together with a snake in a small receptacle. In other words, no one is expected to live with someone who makes them suffer. That's not how a person should live. No one should be made to live with someone who makes them miserable. And let me be very, very clear. Within Jewish texts, within Jewish sources, within Jewish law, there is no mention, no conception of the idea that existed in the past and still exists in some places today that a husband is allowed to discipline his wife, a husband is allowed to do with his wife as he pleases because, in quotation marks, she is his. Nowhere in Judaism is there any such conception. The opposite is true. A husband is absolutely held accountable for any such ill behavior. Many years ago, a woman confided with me and I tell you this because she gave me permission to share it, of course, without any identifying details, and it happened in another city. She confided to me that she was being abused by her husband. And I was meeting with her because I was trying to help her. Hopefully I did help her. And she told me the following. She said, I have bruises, I've suffered broken bones, but the bruises and the broken bones are not as bad as the insults, the put-downs, the constant criticisms. She told me, bruises heal. Bones heal. The sting of those words remains. Ingrid Falaise is a woman who lives in Montreal. She's an actor and she is a survivor of intimate partner violence. And she said, you're reading a book and he says, you're too stupid to read. So we stop reading. If you make honey, sunny side up eggs, he throws them at you because he wanted the eggs cooked a different way. If we put on makeup, we are whores. If we wear no makeup, we aren't looking after ourselves. It gets so that we don't know how to dress anymore or even how to drink our coffee. We stop going out. We lose our identity. They take from us who we are. 
all our power to make decisions. They cut us off from the world and the isolation is a prison. We become ghosts of who we were. Those words, ghosts of who we were, we become ghosts of who we were, is the title of an article in which these words appeared. Last Saturday in the Montreal Gazette, the article was written by Susan Schwartz. Perhaps you read it, and if you did not read it, I urge you, please find this article and read it. Susan documents in heartbreaking detail how in Montreal, right here, like in other places, serious domestic abuse has basically doubled since the beginning of COVID. Again, I urge you to read this article. And I also want to recommend to you a TV series. It's on Netflix. And the title of it is Made. M-A-I-D. Perhaps you saw it. It's for adults. Much of it I found is very hard to watch, but it is gripping. It is compelling. It is brilliantly written and acted. And I recommend it to you highly made on Netflix. So the series, it's one season of whatever number of episodes follows a woman named Alex, a woman who leaves an abusive relationship and she gets a job cleaning people's houses. And even though she herself is experiencing violence, she does not initially identify herself as someone who is being abused. So, in one unforgettable scene, among many unforgettable scenes, but one of them, again, among many others, that so precisely captures the mindset of many women in this situation, goes like this. Alex says she's speaking to the social worker who's the coordinator of a domestic violence shelter. And Alex says to this woman, I would hate to take a bed from somebody who was abused for real. So the coordinator, the social worker said to that, what is that? What does it mean, abused for real? So Alex says, well, beaten up, hurt. And the social worker says, and what does fake abuse look like? Intimidation, threats, control. She says to Alex, 
you need to call the domestic violence hotline yourself. Alex says, what do I say? Help. In the article by Susan Schwartz, Linda Periente, who is one of the supervisors at Ober Shalom, this amazing organization here in Montreal that operates a shelter under Jewish auspices, as well as an external uh, support and uh, therapeutic center for women and children who are facing domestic abuse. Linda is a person that I know and admire tremendously, and we often work together. And she said, she was quoted in this article as saying, we often see women who don't recognize they are abused. You're supposed to trust this person who one moment loves you and the next turns against you. You have this situation where love and danger start merging. You don't know what safety is anymore and you don't trust yourself. You start to think you are crazy. Tegan Webster is one of the counselors at Auberge. And she's quoted in this article as saying, a week does not go by without a client saying, I don't know if I should be accepting your services. We want to end the feeling of it being a secret. She said, women come through the door at Ober Shalom and often they're terrified. They ask, what am I doing here? Do I belong here? It is that moment you take to connect to that person and say, you can breathe here. This is a safe place. This is incredibly powerful. We see people who haven't seen safety for a long time. Dr. Joanne Turgeon is a psychologist who counsels women who have experienced this type of abuse. And this is a critical point that she makes. Conjugal violence is not a couple's conflict. It is not a situation that calls for marriage therapy. It is the control of one person over another. And, and please hear me carefully, it can happen to anyone. She says, it's unfortunate that in society we look down on women who experience conjugal violence. We think of them as inferior or weak or at fault. But she says, it's not true. It's me. It's you. It's all of us. It's not someone else. It happens to women from all walks of life, all classes in society, all levels of education. 
all levels of income and all levels and types of religion. Stephanie Land wrote the memoir that inspired the Netflix series Made. And she told an interviewer, I felt so horrible about myself every second of the day, and he made me believe that I was mentally ill and that I was crazy. Combating this in all its forms is a theme that runs through our Torah portion of Mishpatim. And it is the task of every woman and man in our society to combat this. So let me see this, say this very, very clearly. If you or someone you know is experiencing this or think that you might or they might be experiencing it but are unsure, call me. Call Ober Shalom. I will believe you. I will do everything in my power to help you, including working together with the professionals that are trained specifically for this. Help is available. Safety is available. God hears these cries. And we hear these cries. And we want to help. Let's return now to the first of the two questions I asked earlier. The structure of last week's Torah portion, Yisro, and this week's Parsha Mishpatim is very strange because the narrative of Matan Torah, God revealing himself at Mount Sinai and speaking the Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments, the foundational narrative of Judaism, which creates and expresses the direct relationship that every one of us has with God and the fact that the mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah are a direct expression of that relationship, it's divided into two parts in Yisro and then it's interrupted by our Torah portion Mishpatim and then it resumes at the end of our Parsha this week at the end of Mishpatim. But here's the thing. These two tellings of the same story are parallel, but they're very different. So let's review very quickly. Last week's Torah portion, Yisro, 
Several weeks after leaving Egypt, the Jewish people reach Mount Sinai and they encamp around Mount Sinai. God says to Moshe, go and tell the people, get ready, be prepared on the third day after today. There will be this unprecedented and never to be repeated revelation at Mount Sinai. God Moshe comes back to the people, get ready on the third day, this is gonna happen. It was on the third day, in the morning, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was a cloud. There was the sound of the shofar that kept getting louder and louder. And God started to speak. God spoke all of these words as follows. I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. So, in Yisro, last week's portion, we have the preparation for revelation and the revelation itself, the content of what God said, the Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments. Then, there's an interruption, our Torah portion. The Hamish Batim Tasim Lifnehem. Here's the, here's the system of justice. Here are the laws, civil law, criminal law, an interruption of the story. Why is this subject the interruption and not some other subject? Well, I tried to answer that this morning in our session of 10 at 9. And please give me one moment for a commercial message. I'm very happy to offer to anyone who wants now a an opt-in email list. Every day, Sunday through Friday, I now send an email that comes to you directly with a link of that day's 10 at 9 session plus last year's 10 at 9 session, either video or audio. If you just send me an email, I'll add you to the list. You won't have to go searching. You won't have to go clicking. You won't have to go onto social media. You'll get an email. It'll give you the links directly every day. Okay, end of commercial message. Then at the end of our Parsha, we have a retelling of the same story. At the end of Mishpatim, near the end, Vinigash Moshe Levado El Hashem, Moshe speaks to God, and God tells him, get ready. Moshe comes, and he tells the people what God has said. And, and Moshe takes the book of the covenant. We discussed this earlier, which is the, according to Rashi, the text of the Torah from the beginning of Bereshis up until this point in the Torah. And he reads it to the people. And they say, Everything that God has said, Nasa, we will do it. 
v'nishma, and we'll learn about it. Those famous words, nasa v'nishma, we will do it even before we know what you want from us because we trust that whatever you want is going to be the best thing for us. Okay, so that's the preparation, basically a repetition of what we had before. Then, our Parsha retells the event as follows. Vayiru es elokei Yisrael. And they saw God. I mean, it's hard even to imagine what that means for human beings to see God. God does not have a physical form, but somehow the revelation of God allowed for a, a, an experience of God, again, unprecedented and never to be repeated. What does it mean? They saw God. The Sachas Raglov, now I'm going to read the words of the Pusik, but I don't know what they mean. The Sachas Raglov, and under his feet, Kamase Livnasasapir. It they saw it was like the vision of sapphire bricks. Ukeetsem Hashamayim Latohar and the essence of a clear blue sky. Now, I, I don't understand what that means, but the Torah is describing to us what the Jewish people felt at that moment. So what's going on here? Why are there two separate passages about the same event? I see that I'm running a little late, so I'm going to try to shorten this last part. Okay, I'm going to save this part because it's really good, and I'm going to come back to it another time. <clears throat> but the short form of the answer is, Yisro, the passage, the narrative in Yisro is about the literary content, the words, the knowledge of what God said at Mount Sinai. Mishpatim is the sense of awe that the people felt. The sense of trust that they had. Nasev Nishma means, I will agree to do whatever you say, before you even tell me what it is, because I have absolute trust, there is a certainty that whatever you ask of me is what is good for me. That's what Nasevanishma means. And the reason those two narratives are separated is because they are both necessary. It's necessary for every aspect of Jewish life for the way that we study Torah, for the way that we observe commandments, especially for prayer. We need a proper amount of both. We need the content and we also need the awe, the awareness, the trust. And it's for that reason the narrative is split into two pieces in order to give the spotlight to each of these essential elements. My friends, I want to wish you a great night.
and a fantastic Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.